to a familiar passage of Scripture, Psalms, the 23rd Psalm we're going to be sharing this morning. I want to stay close to my notes today. I lost my original glasses, but how cool that these glasses match my coat. So we'll be, they're, they're actually not quite powerful enough, but uh, maybe as Pastor Rhonda got her neck healed, maybe my eyes will be restored and my back and my wrists and my blood pressure and all the other things. She, she said, touch your body wherever you need healing. I didn't have enough hands to touch all the places on my body where I need to be healed. I shared yesterday, when you turn 50, and I'm getting ready to celebrate 59, which means absolutely nothing. There's nothing mystical or magical about that number, so we won't make a big deal about it. We'll be letting you know more how we're going to celebrate my parents who brought me into this world. They did not abandon me. They did not abort me, but they let me live. Look at yourself and look at your friend and say, if it wasn't for your mama, you wouldn't be here today. Thank God for moms that carry us full term and know that there is a purpose and plan. God said, before you were in your mother's womb, I had a name for you, a gender for you, a purpose and a plan for your life. We thank God for all that he's doing. But I told a friend, once you turn 50, things start falling off, over, down, in, under. And uh, you think you, be you begin to appreciate your youth more when you realize you don't have your youth anymore. It's a, you begin to reflect all the things you got to do and all the things you took for granted that you cannot do now. But uh, God is faithful and God's consistent, and I've learned that I can still turn the pages of my Bible and I can still climb a deer stand, so God has been good to me. The thought or the subject today, if you're one of those that absolutely have to have a sermon title, and we, we appreciate that, is how to be content, how to be content in a discontented world. How to be content in a discontented world. Quote with me, if you will, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley's shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I appreciate all those King James versions of the 23rd Psalm. I know those, but New Living Bible, American Standard Bible, all the different Bibles, it still doesn't change the fact that this is a powerful, incredible passage of Scripture about the fact of God being our shepherd. My definition of the word content, according to Webster's Dictionary, is satisfied, pleased, and willing. Satisfied, pleased, and willing. Are you content today in the things God is doing in your life or has done in your life or is going to do in your life? The definition of discontent is dissatisfied, grieving, and miserable. Dissatisfied, grieving, and miserable. I've been missing headline news the past few mornings because I've been called to protect this city from the killer deer and I have been in a tree stand when the night noises cease and the morning noises begin. One of those beautiful times of the day when the dawn, when the, when the world wakes up. And it's been a wonderful season for me just to reflect on the goodness and the favor of God. But I did manage to catch a little bit of headline news yesterday. And again, we realize that our world is miserable. It's unhappy. It's frustrated. It's obviously dissatisfied, grieving, and miserable. We look at all the things that are happening with the budget and balancing the budget and that our nation is going bankrupt. And I do not have a voice in Washington, but if I did have a voice in Washington, I would teach them what I learned a long time ago. If you don't have any money, stop spending. Just a thought, not Republican or Democratic, just basic good old home. If you don't have money, quit spending. Tear up your your. Your, your credit cards and begin to operate on what God has given you to operate on and stop lending money to countries that hate our guts. Hello, why in the world we give millions and billions of dollars to people that hate us, they hate what we stand for, they don't mind spending our money, but they don't like what we are and what we do. And, you know, just another thought that if I ever had a voice in Washington and probably my third 
uh, request to Washington would be start praying. The Bible said, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will, and turn from the wicked way, God says, I will hear from heaven do two things. I will forgive their sin and heal their land. How many knows that our land is sick? How many knows that our land is in trouble? How many of our land is miserable today? The Beatles said it so well, I don't care too much for money. Money can't buy me love. Whether you have it or don't, or don't have it, if you're not at peace with God, it's not going to bring you joy. It's not going to bring you pleasure. You can spend all you want. At, at the end of the day, you're still going to be dissatisfied, grieving, and miserable. Taking from this word today, when I look at the word discontent, if I may tear the word down into three parts or four parts, if I may, the word dis was never a word in my vocabulary. That was not the 70s generation. That's some kind of new word. And when someone says they dis you or I've been dis, most of you pretty much know what it means. But I have learned that if you sow dissing, you will reap dissing. If you speak bad about others, they will probably speak bad about you. If you run down everything and everybody, you probably be run down and you will probably be frustrated like everybody else. Can anybody bear witness to what Pastor Hank is saying this morning? Then I look at the next part of that word, which is con. And I want to tell you this morning, you can fool some of the people all the time. You can fool yourself some of the time, but you can't ever fool the spirit that's on the inside of you that's crying out for more. And it's so amusing in life in the Christian world, we have terminology that the world does not have. I mean, they, when you ask somebody, hey, how you doing? Hey, man, I'm blessed going in, blessed going out. And bless their heart, the transmission has fallen out of their car. Their tires are flat. They don't have money to put gas in there, but they're blessed. I think we can for a while. And, and it's always good to say pause and speak those things that aren't as they are, and so shall they be. I understand all of that. But there are times when our vocabulary needs to be, God, I'm in trouble. I need some help. I am, a, I am a sinner saved by grace. I need your mercy. I need your favor. Am I talking to anybody in the building this morning? Then when I look at the word mint, M-E-N-T, I, I look at that word, and I realize it's part of the testament. It's part of the promise of the word of God. And I believe that as we begin to reflect on what God's word has to say about our situation, I believe that we will change the tent that we're living in and find another Tent. And that's all based upon the word of God and how much you really do believe in the power of the word and the power of God. So what tent are you living in today? Now, my, my dad's idea of camping out was camping out. We would go to the Rockies or we would go somewhere in Northern California and dad would take a tent and we would take a, a, a stove and we'd take butane and we would take coals and we would take ice chests. And I remember it seemed like it took forever to take everything out of the vehicle, get everything set up, and Dad would make pancakes and bacon. I remember those, those early, early cold mornings when you were so cold and you're in a sleeping bag and you actually allowed your little brother to get in the bag with you because you were so cold and you normally would let him touch you with the 10-foot pole. Hello, can I get a witness? That's not my idea of camping out. My idea of roughing it is going without room service at Holiday Inn. That's my idea of camping, and that's my idea of roughing it. But the word says that we are strangers and pilgrims in this land. And like Abraham, who by now has found it, we're, we're looking for a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. So you determine this morning where you pinch your tent. The Bible says that Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom and Gomorrah, towards the things of the world. If you're looking for the world to please you and satisfy you, again, I'm going to tell you, you're going to be a very unhappy camper because what we're looking for today, only Jesus can satisfy our soul and only he can fill the empty place, the void places in our life. That's why he made us like that. He knows the empty places. He knows how to fill them up. He, he knows how to bring restoration and healing. When I look at Psalms, the 23rd chapter, I just want to bring to your attention that this was not written while David was on the king, enjoying being the king, enjoying all the prosperity and all the blessings of being the king of the world. It was not written in that season of his life. 
It was not written when he was a little boy and had a lot of time in the, in, the, in the pasture taking care of the sheep. It was not written in that particular time of his life. This was probably written at probably one of the darkest, most horrific times of the life of David. I'll have more to comment on later about that. But there are three things that I would like for us to learn today from this psalm that God has given us through the words of the psalmist David. And the first thing that I would like for you to realize and remember and, and commit to memory, commit to your heart, and the decisions you make in the next week is this. In our wilderness, God has committed to feed us to fullness. In our wilderness, God has committed to feed us to our fullness. Mark 11 and 3 says, give us this day our daily bread. The first two verses of Psalms 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. The, the, the purpose of the shepherd or the job of the shepherd is to provide two things to the sheep. The first thing that he is to provide to the sheep is food to eat. How many would agree and say that's probably pretty important? And the second thing that he is to provide to the sheep is water to drink. Can anybody relate that those two things are probably pretty important? Do I have a witness in the building. In Luke 10 and 37, here's what Jesus said. Don't worry. Take thought about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink, but consider the lilies, consider the sparrow. That Solomon in all of his glory could not clothe the lily as God has done it. And God personally takes care of the meal of every single sparrow living in this city. Now, when I was a little younger, I had a BB gun. It was my goal in life to save the city of Bellflower from the killer sparrows. The killer sparrows, I was afraid, was going to hurt and harm people. So it was my, Alex, it was my job in life to get my BB gun and shoot every sparrow that I could. I, I, guess, I, I guess I'm just a natural-born killer. I guess just all my life that was one of the things that, that, I was, uh, that hunting has been in me. I remember I shared this story with some of you. When I was about sixth or seventh grade, I was walking home from school, and it rained pretty hard. In California, we have sidewalks, curb, and gutters. And there in the gutter was a gopher that was half drowned. He was, he was struggling. He was having a tough time. So I thought, I thought it would be kind to nature and to God if I were to spare that gopher's life. So I put that gopher in my pocket. And in those days, you had a pocket that went all the way through. You could both put both your hands at the same time and keep them warm. Anybody have a coat like that? It was a perfect haven for a sick gopher. And I put it in my, in my pocket, and I went home. And then I told my dad what I had done, that I'd helped God. I had saved a gopher from his demise. And my dad said, well, where's the gopher? I said, well, it's here in my pocket. So I went to get the gopher out of my pocket, and the gopher had the audacity to bite me. So when that gopher bit me, I took a rake, and I killed that gopher. I beat that gopher to its death. How dare that gopher? Here I was trying to spare its life, and it was trying to take my life. Is that... That I help anybody in the building. But the two, the two things that sheep need the most is food and water. And aren't you glad this morning that God feeds us, restores us, he allows us to drink rivers of living water, and he blesses us with all those things. In this, in this story of David, as he prepares to write this particular passage of Scripture, which is probably quoted at almost every funeral. I mean, this is a powerful, this is a passage of Scripture that helps people concerning, yea, though I walk the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Let me tell you a little bit about the story of David. We are not sure. There are Bible scholars that insinuate that uh, David was born out of wedlock when, the, when Samuel came to the house to get all the sons and begin to anoint the sons of Jesse. They brought the sons, but David was not there with them. So we're not sure if they were embarrassed of David, if he was out in the woods taking care of the sheep because he was an illegitimate child, or they just forgot about the baby, which I find, I find, that, hard, I find that hard to grasp that they forget about the baby because they're usually the most spoiled and most precious. Can anybody relate? And I was not the baby, so I certainly know what it's like not to be the baby of the family. But we know that David was, David was anointed, and then a little later we know that David killed Goliath, and then David was given a lousy wife, and then David began to hide from Saul for about 13 years as Saul tried to, tried to kill him, tried to take his life. Then we know that David was anointed king, and in a, in a moment 
of depression. Listen, when nighttime comes, it's time to sleep. When daytime comes, it's time to get up and go to work. In this depression that David was encountering, he was not sleeping very well. And late one night, he saw something he should not have seen. He saw Bathsheba bathing, and something stirred in his spirit, and he sent for her. He slept with her, and he got her pregnant. And you know the story that when he found out that she was pregnant, he sent for Uriah, which was her husband who was on the battlefield, one of the mighty men of David on the front line. He called Uriah home, hoping that Uriah would go home, sleep with his wife, and therefore could justify the pregnancy. Uriah, being the warrior that he was, had the attitude, if my fellow soldiers could not be at home in a warm bed with their wife, then why should I be? He slept at the, at the king's uh, opening to his corridor. He slept there when David realized he'd not go home and sleep with his wife. David gave orders for Uriah to be sent into battle with several others, and there he was to be abandoned. So adultery, murder, and as we look at the latter part of David's life, and I don't know if, it, if you can say it's because of the, the adultery or the murder, but David's kids had a lot of challenges. I don't, you've heard me speak before that David was a great psalmist, a great singer, a great warrior, but he was a lousy dad. He had some kids that were majorly out of order. He had one son that desired his sister, made a plan, deceived her, raped her, and then discarded her. The other brother got mad because his brother had molested his sister, and he murdered the brother. Absalom has come to a place where he feels like he's supposed to be the king, and Absalom runs David out of the throne. David does not try to fight his son. He does not try to defend himself, but he goes into hiding. And in that, in that season of hiding, David is in a place where he writes, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. How ironic it is that when we're on the top of the world, a lot of times we're not very creative. But when there's a storm, when there's a negative, when there's a pain or there's a hurt or there's a wound, it's amazing how creative we become. Can anybody relate? It's, that, it's in those moments of our life that we are in trouble. It seems like we turn to God, run to God, fall down at the feet of God, and then all of a sudden all kinds of incredible, phenomenal anointing, favor, blessing begins to come upon us. I learned a long time ago, you can't tell anybody anything when they're on the top. But when they're on the bottom, it seems like people will take heed and they will listen to try to learn how to get from where they're at to go back to where they've been and maybe learn never to go back to the bottom again. Do I have a friend in the house this morning? And that's where, that's where, that's where David was in his life. Things had pretty much fallen apart. He was in trouble. But in this season of trouble, the Bible says that God provides lodging, God provides food, God provides shelter for David while he's in this storm. Everyone in this house, without exception, are going to experience a wilderness in your life. We experience what Jesus experienced. He's a type and a shadow. He's the pattern, and we pattern our life. We pattern our discipleship after him. I like the, the statement in Jeremiah 9 and 2 where Jeremiah, everything that he had been speaking, everything they'd been prophesying was being rejected. They were trying to kill him. They were trying to stone him. And here's what Jeremiah says. Oh, that I had a lodging place in the wilderness. Aren't you glad this morning that you have a lodging place in the wilderness? Aren't you glad that there is a safe place that you can go? I have a, I have a lifelong friend that lives in the Ottawa area and they are a part of a family that is very wealthy, and in their wealth, they decided to build a, a really nice log cabin in South Georgia, and we call it a cabin. It's about a, a million-dollar um, venture. It's, a, it's an incredible place, incredible. It's on about a 10-acre lake. It's right in the middle of a bunch of woods, and uh, there are hunting stands, and there are blinds, and there's a there's a boat, and there's a, there's a dock, and there's a gazebo. And in this house, there's a wall that belongs to me. Because Pastor Rhonda would not allow me to share all my trophies as David held up the head of Goliath, I'm not allowed to have any dead animals on the walls of my house. But I have a wall in South Georgia that's Hank's wall. There on that wall, I've got the trophy deer that I killed and I scored. I've got a hog with great big tusks. I've got a javelin. I've got some other deer. There's a coyote. There's a bobcat, there's a fox. All the things can hurt your children when you're in the woods that I have taken upon myself to defend the family. I have my own room, I have my own bed, and there the, the, the mom that, that facilitates this house is an incredible, 
phenomenal cook. She's a wonderful friend. She's a great, uh, she's just a, just a great, great servant. And so that is my lodging place. It's a place I can go and be myself. It's a place where I can go and wear my pajamas all day if I want to. It's a place where I can go to the refrigerator always knowing there's going to be something good to eat there. There's always blackberry cobbler. There's always something on the stove, some chicken and dumplings. I know I'm probably making you guys hungry today. But that is my lodging place. And aren't you glad this morning that we have a, a lodging place? There's a place where all can go and find their own place with God. It may be your closet. It might be your uncle's house. It may be the church. It might be a, a, a tree stand out in the woods. But there's a place that we can go and God can provide and God can bless and so that we are not alone. Can anybody relate to any of that? Deuteronomy 8 and 2, if the guys will pull that up for me, I want to show you something about this wilderness that we are in. Everybody's in a wilderness. The Bible says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into a wilderness. I'm I reflecting on three wildernesses that I have been. Uh, I have been to Alaska, the last frontier, and as you leave uh, Spokane, Washington, or wherever you're at, maybe Portland, Oregon, when you get on that Alaska airline and you go to fly to Anchorage, there are miles and miles and miles and miles, hundreds of miles, several hours that you fly over nothing but glacier caps, white mountains, uh, freezing weather, a place where if you're not prepared, you could die. Then I remember going to South Texas, to Freer, uh, Texas, and we went just a few miles out of town, and there were thousands of acres of nothing but mesquite and cactus and, and sand, rattlesnakes, scorpions. It's a place that if you didn't know what you're, you're, you were doing, you probably could not survive. Then I always remember uh, Death Valley, uh, the Palm Springs area of California, where it's nothing but miles and miles of sand and cacti. And if you got out there without any water, if you ran out of gas, it's a place where you could very possibly die. Does anybody relate to the wilderness? Sometimes the wilderness can be losing your job. Sometimes the wilderness could be going through a financial struggle. Sometimes the wilderness could be some kind of marital issue. But everyone, sooner or later in life, is going to experience a wilderness. There's five things that God wants to show you in the wilderness. If you'll look at Deuteronomy 8, all the commandments which I command. Don't worry, guys, I didn't give you this. I'm just reading the first verse. All the commandments which I give you this day you shall observe to do, that you may live and multiply. And go in and possess the land which the Lord sware unto your fathers. Verse 2. And thou shalt remember all the way the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee, to prove thee, to know what is in thy heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or not. The first thing I believe that God wants to teach you in the wilderness is to learn how to walk in gratitude. Tanner, this is a generation that has lost the ability to say thank you. This generation assumes it's all about them, and this generation so much takes for granted the things that are provided them. There's a, there's a, there's a catchphrase that I use quite often. If you've been around me very long, you will have heard me say it. But when someone, listen, I don't do what I do for appreciation. I don't need to be thanked for the time I spend in prayer and study and present the word. Pastor Rhonda does not need to be thanked because we don't do it because man called us, we do it because God called us, and we will get all the things that we need when we stand before him and we hear him say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. But there's just something about it when someone takes the time to say thank you. And if you're around me very much and you thank me for something that I will have done, I will, I will say back to you, thanks for saying thanks. Thanks for saying thanks. Because it's, it's so easy sometimes in life to feel like you're being taken for granted. Can anybody relate? And, you know, and it, has nothing to do, it has nothing to do with parenting, but we raise our kids to expect a meal two or three times a day. Or if you're a teenager, five or six times a day. We raise our kids expecting to know that at school there will be clothes for school. We raise our kids knowing that on their birthday there will be a special surprise that on Christmas the tree will be loaded down with gifts just for them. So all the way from the cradle to the coffin, we grow up just taking things for granted, just expecting it to be there. But there's power in thanksgiving. Ephesians eleven twenty four 24 says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God 
concerning you. Let me show you the power of gratitude. There were 10 lepers. They heard that Christ was coming. They rushed to Christ. Christ told them, go show yourself to the priest. Well, they knew by faith that that was a miracle because if for any reason in life you were cured of the, of the cancer or the cancer left your body, you would go to the priest, how ironic, the minister of that day, and you would show yourself, and if the, if the cancer had dried up, if the leprosy had dried up, you're released to go and be a part of civilization. Earlier, you were banned. You were ostracized. You were not a part. We went to Hawaii to the leper colony there at Molokai. It's an incredible, phenomenal village that they don't even really know that they have leprosy. They're just a they're just a people that's not afraid to work. They make things. They sell things. They're very lovely. They're precious. A very good assembly of God there that, that we spoke at. But when a leper is told to go to the priest, that pretty much lets them know they've been healed. They ran off to show themselves the priest. On their journey towards the priest, they realized they were healed. And the Bible says one came back and said, thank you. And Jesus looked around and said, well, I thought there was 10 of you. Only one. Watch this. Only one came back, and Jesus looked at that leper and said, Go thy way, and be thou made whole. When you study this type of leprosy, this was the type of leprosy that removed limbs from your body. This was a type of leprosy where your thumb could fall off. This is a type of leprosy where you could lose your ear. That's the type of leprosy it was. And when Jesus looked at the one leper that said, Thank you, and said, go thy way and be made whole. I believe there was a creative miracle. I believe the limbs that were missing reappeared. I believe the, the parts of his body that had been eaten by this cancer were restored. And that's what happens when you take time to say thanks. That's what happens when you go the extra step and say, Lord, I just want to thank you from where you brought me from to where I am today. I want to thank you for all the blessings of yesterday. I want to thank you that no matter where I'm at, you're with me. You'll never leave me or forsake me even to the end of time. I want to thank you that I'm adopting the family of God, that I'm bought by the blood of Jesus. I want to thank you that my destination is not hell, but my destination is heaven. I want to thank you that through you, I can do all things and you're going to supply all my need. There's something powerful that happens when we give thanks. And God said, in everything, give thanks. There are bad things that happen in our life that it's tough to give thanks for that. It's tough to give thanks for a car accident that maybe broke a part of your body. It's tough to give thanks when someone you love dies prematurely. It's tough to give thanks when you fail that test and you study so hard. Am I talking to anybody in the building? But our whole demeanor, our, our whole attitude First of all, is to realize that we're no longer a worm saved by grace. We're no longer destined to hell. But this is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. That chair was meant to sit in. This, pulp, this microphone was meant to spit in. This pulpit was made to stand behind. And you were created to praise and worship God. And we thank him as long as there's one breath left in us. We still have the ability to praise the Lord. Do I have a friend in the house anywhere in the house? in the wilderness as you watch the people of God the 40 years that they were in the wilderness notice the things they did not say thank you for they had no bread so God hired the angels of heaven to open up the heavenly bakery begin to allow heavenly bread to fall upon them they had no meat so God killed the fatted calf and let them eat they had no water so God opened up the river of living water for the heat, God provided a cloud, and for the cold, God provided a pillar of fire. He took care of them in every single area of their life, but all they could do was grumble and complain and murmur. It was never enough. It was never good enough. And that entire generation missed the whole purpose and plan of God. He had a land that flowed with milk and honey. He had a land of blessing. He wouldn't repay them for the 400 years they lived in, in slavery because God keeps account of everything you do. He writes it down in a book and he wouldn't reward this generation. But because their mouth was out of order and they didn't know how to say thank you, they'd spent 400 years, slaves being beaten, being manipulated, being molested, being trashed. All of them had, had grown up under slavery. They were free. I mean, how would you like to go from being beaten, whipped, making blocks for a pyramid, and then you get to camp out every night with your dad at Holiday Inn with no room service? Can anybody <laughs> relate to this? In the, the second thing that God wants to teach us in the wilderness 
Verse 3, you guys have already looked at this. And he humbled thee. He humbled thee. The world judges sin completely opposite the way that God judges sin. If you're drug-free, you point your finger at the drug addict. If you're alcohol-free, you point your finger at the alcoholic. If your gender's healthy, you point your finger at the gender that isn't healthy. But never in the Word of God does it say that God hates alcoholics, God hates drug addicts, God hates gender challenge. Nowhere does it say that. God hates what they're doing, but God loves them right in the very pit and demise of their sin. Paul said, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us because we serve our whole life, worship him and praising him, tithing and supporting him, raising up godly kids to go in the world. That's not why he died for us. He died for us when we were in the deepest of the deep, well, when we were in that miry clay, we were in that pit with no refreshment. That's when he died for us. When we were unlovable, untouchable, unwantable, that's when Christ said, I will go to earth. I will take on the form of man. I will walk among them for 33 years. I'll experience every temptation they experience. I will teach them how to overcome temptation. I will take the, take the, the death sting away, the grave sting away, and I will resurrect so they might have life and have it more abundantly. That's what God did for us. So when we talk about humility, the things that God hates is a proud look, a lying tongue, pride, a brother swift to, 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 to sow discord, bearing false witness, going to court and lying on the, on, the, on the... God hates those things. And all those things, what God is trying to do is for us to get our eyes off of us and get our eyes off of him and walk in humility. Listen, not a single person in my life, and I know a lot of people, there's no one in my life that is kind enough, good enough, innocent enough to earn eternal life on their own. It is a gift. It's for God so loved the world that he gave. The next verse said that God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. And this is the condemnation that men preferred darkness to light because their deeds were evil. So we're in a generation that's raised up that learns how to do evil. Humility, humility does not say, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like that guy over there. Humility says, Lord, I thank you that you love me just the way I was when I was unlovable. You came into my life. You gave me gifts. You gave me talents. You gave me the ability to do something for the kingdom. And for that, I am humble. And the word says that God honors. Matter of fact, I, I think I wrote it down. I think the guys are going to show it to you, that God honors a humble and contrite spirit. Do you guys have that in your notes? Isaiah 57, 15, that God honors a humble and contrite. That word contrite means peaceful. Listen, if you're a hell raiser, a troublemaker, a rabble rouser, that's all you do. You probably don't qualify for the humble and contrite blessing. I mean, there's other blessings for you that God has, but to, ha to have that favor of God upon your life, for you to acknowledge that I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me, the abilities and talents I have, God said in Deuteronomy 28, don't forget me because I am giving you a power to get wealth. He gives, he gives us wealth so we can sustain the kingdom. The definition of prosperity is having enough to meet the needs of your family and a little bit left over to help somebody else. That's what prosperity is all about. And aren't you God that God gives us a goal that we can attach and we can reach by the ability of budget, wise spending, and favor. Budget, wise spending, and favor. My Lord, I feel like Zig Ziglar this morning. All these three, John Maxwell just spitting these things out. The third reason that God allows us to walk through the wilderness, are you ready for this? To test us so that we can have a testimony. To test us so we can have a testimony. Many of us were raised in environments that were not healthy. The flower power generation was a generation that abandoned their wives. The flower power generation was a generation that abandoned their children. The word said in Malachi, God's not happy about that. In the last days, there's going to be a revival. We're going to turn the hearts of the children back to the fathers, the heart of the fathers back to the children. But this is a generation that seems to have abandoned their children. I believe it's the ostrich that abandons its egg and other 
other fowls of the, of the forest will sit on that egg and, and, and hatch out that egg. But we are, we are in a season where it seemed like the generation that we have, the generation before us, has left us with a whole lot of stuff here that we don't know what to do with. And there are, there are troubles and trials that we go through. The song says, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Can anybody relate? It's, it's like you're not immune from frustrations, worry, bad things. You're not immune from those things just because you're born again. There was a singer in the early, early 70s that sang a song said, I beg your pardon, I never promised you a rose garden. A lot of times when people come to Christ, they think it's peachy cream. And you know what? There is a, hun- there is a honeymoon period. There is a, there, is a, there is a month or two there where you go to every Bible study, you read the Bible, you quote, you watch Christian television, you pass out tracts. I mean, you are the, you're Mr. Christian. I mean, you're so happy, 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 just like Phil Robertson. Then all of a sudden, there's a little tweak. There's a little bump in the road. Can anybody relate? Then all of a sudden, it's like the people of, of, of uh, God, when they brought them out in the wilderness, they said, we miss the cucumbers and leeks. Why in the world would you want to eat leeks when you're eating quail and manna that God has cooked? Hello? You talk about Pillsbury. You talk about some good food. When God does it, it's the best. But a lot of times we start going through troubles. We start going through trials. And we will abandon our trouble and trial just to realize it's going to be there the next day. I mean, you can go get so ripped and so inebriated that you can have a wonderful time, but the morning you wake up, you lost your car, and you find out you ran into something, you ran into somebody else, they got the car impounded, they're looking for you. Hello, you don't have money to pay your own bill. Is there a witness in the building this morning? So there are reasons why we go through tests. I remember probably about 20, 26 years ago, I was with Keith Dudley in Savannah, Georgia. It was a church that I'd wanted to go to for a long time. It was a great, still a great church today. But in that, in that season, it was one of the most incredible churches in the nation in that particular denomination. I went, and we had, a, we had an incredible, phenomenal Sunday morning. We had an incredible, phenomenal Sunday night. And then Monday morning, I got real sick, and Keith and I were staying there in the motel. And I got so sick that eventually I was transferred to, to the motel, to the hospital. I stayed in the hospital a week, and then uh, because of Sam and Patty Evans sent money for me to go to City of Faith, I was at City of Faith for eight weeks where they just cut me open, look around to see what was wrong, what was causing all the, all the, anyway, I, the, the point of the story is this, I looked at Keith on Tuesday morning, I was sick as a dog, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, went to the hospital Thursday, I looked at Keith and said, Keith, the word says that he won't put more on you than you can bear, and I said, Keith, I feel like I'm at the place where I can't bear anything else, you ever been there? You ever felt like, man, I can't, I can't handle this. I can't, I, I cannot, this is, this is way out of my league. This is, this is not fair. Can anybody relate? This is not fair. But you stayed the course. You endured the storm. Psalm 107 says he has the ability to turn your storm into a whisper and get you safe into the port that you were designated for. But the point of it is in the trial, in the storm, you've got to have a goal. I mean, hey, maybe just enduring is the goal. Maybe just surviving the storm is just the goal. Hey, maybe just getting my feet on solid rock while I'm swimming in the ocean. Maybe that's the only goal that I have. But it's important that you have a port for your ship to sail to so that God can calm the storm and you can find safety on the other side of the storm. Look at somebody who say, weeping endures for a season, but joy comes in the morning. And what happens with this testimony that you have received, be very careful what I say, let me say this in, in all the humility I can possibly say, uh, Daystar hosts hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of uh, speakers, ministers, singers, uh, the, the, and there's not, nobody's greater than anybody else, but you know, the cutting edge, the John Hagee, the Marilyn Hickey, the Joyce Meyer, they host the greatest of the greatest, and they, they entertain the greatest of the greatest, but not once, not twice, but on three occasions, when Pastor Ron and I go to Daystar and share our testimony, we are told that we get more phone calls and more emails and more responses on that program than any other guest they have. Because of the testimony of the restoration, the, the, the blessing, Joni Lamb wrote a book, Surrender All, that was on the New York best times, the best, best seller for weeks. The third chapter of that book tells our story. 
she told our story to the world. Had we not survived the drugs, the alcohol, the divorce, we wouldn't have a story to tell. But because we made it through, because we survived, because we endured to the end, now our testimony has the ability to touch the world. Someone say, praise the Lord. God gives you, watch this, God gives you a testimony so you can bless somebody else so they can go from where they're at to where you're at. Revelation 12 and 11 says, we overcome the enemy and the number one trick of the enemy in Daniel 7, the last days, is to wear out the saints of the Most High. Anybody relate? Anybody feel like so just wore out, just, man, I'm at my end. I've taken all I can take. I've done all I can do. I don't know what else to do. And, of course, the song says, having done all, just stand. Just stand the arm and say, God, don't forget me. Here I am. I'm standing. All hell is going on around me, but I believe you're going to deliver. I believe you're going to set me free. And he does. And then when you share your testimony with someone else, it gives them hope. And how many knows that hope deferred makes the heart sick? People without hope don't survive. People without hope medicate. People without hope commit suicide. People without hope do dumb, stupid, crazy things. But because Christ in you, the hope of glory, you have the ability to brighten someone else's day, to lighten someone else's load, and to bring them to the place that God wants them to have. That's why it's important to know that in order for you to have a testimony, you have to pass the test. And aren't you glad it's an open book test? Aren't you glad all the answers are in here and it's open book? And how, how, aren't you glad because of the liquid paper of the blood of Jesus, if you mess up once, he blots all that out and you start all over again as if you had never failed. Somebody give a Lord a hand up appreciation for that. The fourth reason that God allows us to go through the, uh, the storms of life, the wilderness of life, is to teach us Priorities. Let me tell you something, when you are blessed and you can spend your mind on anything you want to spend it on and anything you, you, you want to do, you don't sometimes realize the goodness of God. But then when you don't have anything and you can't pay the bills and you don't have enough food and you are in trouble, it's then you begin to notice the little bitty things that God does every day to lighten our load. Silly things, silly things. If I told you how many times I prayed in tongues over the suburban, it wasn't, it wasn't E, it wasn't dead E, it was double dog dead E. I mean, it was like way over here like this. And, and I, knew there was no, I knew there was no gas in that, in that vehicle. But for, and I don't recommend that you do this, but I said, Lord, I, I, just, I just need to get to Udawal. Lord, I just need to get to, I just need to get over, over here. I just need, and for, for time after time, God, it seemed like he allowed me to operate on fumes. Now, if I could learn how to patent that, I would be a very wealthy man. But can anybody relate to the, the, the things that we go through that we learn the priorities and the faithfulness of God? We have um, a friend. I was there the day he was born. I held him, uh, played with him, grew up with his mom and two sisters. Our family grew up with another family. We had two brothers. They had three girls, and we did vacation together. We did the lake. We did the motor home. We did the houseboat. Just a, just a wonderful family. And, and the, the second daughter uh, birthed a young man by the name of Hayden Moss. And Wednesday night at whatever time Survivor comes on, if you go on Survivor and you see Hayden, that, that is one of our friends, one of our lifelong friends. And every Thursday I call his mother-in-law to, to, to or grandmother, rather, and we talk about the program. I'm not a big Survivor fan. I never watch it at all until that one time. But I learned on Survivor, there are four things that are necessary in Survivor. Are you ready? The first thing that the Survivor does before they do anything else is try to produce fire. And aren't you glad that when you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, you got that fire of God, the power of God, the authority of God in your life? Do I have a friend in the crowd? The second thing they do after they create the fire is try to find shelter. Find some kind, of, some kind of roof over your head, some kind of shelter. Aren't you glad that you're safe in the arms of God and he provides the shelter and that you need to withstand the hot day and the cold night? The third thing they try to find, which is pretty important, I would say, is water. If you don't have water, you're not going to survive. And then most of you, if you're like me, your stomach's already growling. The fourth thing that you need is for you have got to find food. Let me tell you something. It's scary what you will eat when you're really hungry. 
I know kids will say, ooh, I don't want that. Ooh, I don't like that. I don't eat that. You let that kid go three days without food, they'll eat, they'll eat Brussels sprouts. Hello, they'll eat cauliflower. Hello, they'll eat sauerkraut wieners. When you're, when you're hungry, you'll eat about anything. You talk to those who survived the jungles of Vietnam, they were eating bugs and they were eating bulbs and they were eating leaves. The Bible says that John the Baptist ate locusts and wild honey. Now, a lot of Bible scholars believe that was a locust tree, that, they, that the leaves were edible. But no, I think that he was into chocolate-covered grasshopper. I just think that was his, that, was his, that he, he humbled himself and he would eat grasshoppers. I'm not recommending you to eat grasshoppers unless you have a lot of salt and garlic to go with it. But you don't really realize how much you appreciate the finer things of God until he begins to teach you what are priorities. What are the priorities of life? And again, he said, we pray, give us this day our daily bread. It's been a long time. I don't ever remember ever in my life, ever, having only 28 cents in my name. I've never known that day. I don't ever I've never known seasons when I had to go to a food pantry and get food. May I tell you, the past 18 months have been tough. And may I tell you, there were seasons in my life when I only had 28 cents. May I tell you, I went to the refrigerator and ate all the popcorn that Pastor Todd, I thought, wasted, but there the Lord provided it there for me to eat. You say, Pastor, how serious are you being? I'm being very serious. I've been to a place like the Apostle Paul. I have learned to be content whether I abound or whether I have a base. I mean, I know, I know all about Red Lobster. I know all about Longhorn. I know all about Aubrey's Ball-Headed Bistro. But I also know when I went to McDonald's and said day before yesterday, do you still have that dollar cheeseburger? And you still got that dollar? Yeah. I'm, I, and, and so it's lessons like that when you're eating the dollar cheeseburger that when they throw your Red Lobster gift certificate, you're more appreciative of Red Lobster. You're more appreciative of Aubrey. You're more appreciative when someone picks up your meal. You go into a restaurant, you don't know who, but you think you know who did it. You learn that. And that's when God said, I want you to learn the priorities of life, that in everything you give me thanks, know there's a test going on, and you realize what, what are the important things of life, because when you realize what's important to yourself, then you'll make things happen to others that, that have their priorities out of way. You'll feed the hungry, you'll clothe the naked, and you'll spend some time writing letters to prison or going to a jail ministry. It turns your whole life. When you ain't got nothing and you see God pull you up by your bootstrap and you find that you, then all of a sudden you start having compassion for those that don't have anything else. Someone give the Lord a hand clap of praise in this house. I had here on teach priorities, and I have a few minutes, so I'll just go ahead and share about, about lessons that we learn in life. What happened to Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel could have been avoided. Isaiah warned Hezekiah several years earlier, your house is out of order. Your family's out of order. Bad things are going to happen. Bad people are going to come. They're going to murder your men, they're going to rape your women, and they're going to incarcerate your children, and they're going to put them in stocks and bonds. Hezekiah knew how to pray. Hezekiah was told by the man of God that he was dead. Get your house in order. Turned his face to the wall and called out to God, and before the man of God could leave the portico of the palace, God said, go back and tell him he's got 14 years. This man knew how to pray, but he didn't. This generation is about to learn how to pray. We prayed at Desert Storm. We prayed at Desert Shield. We prayed at 911. Why does it always take tragedy and turmoil in our life to begin to call out to God? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, their parents were murdered. They were taken to Babylon. They were castrated. They were eunuchs. They never had the ability to enjoy marriage sex and marriage, all of it. They never had kids. They never had grandkids. None of that. But they refused to eat the king's meat and they refused to drink the king's wine. They said, God has given us a diet here. Let us eat this. And at the time of testing, God will prove us. And the Bible says in that season, they were on that Daniel fast. They ate, they drank water, and they ate some kind, of, some kind of porridge, some kind of oatmeal, some kind of substance there that, that they, had, they, had, they knew how to make. And at the time of testing, the Bible says they were 
10 times better than all the competition. So there's something about going to the test. There's something about learning things from God. There's something about operating after you learn things from God. I need a hand. I need someone to give the Lord a hand for his teachable spirit called the Holy Ghost. Proverbs 3 and 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all thy heart. Lean not into thy own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. I'm going to go back to Psalms 23. I told you three things I was going to teach you, Psalms 23. The second thing, if, you, if you're, God is committed to excellence, to provider, that's, that's number one. Number two, in our failure, God is faithful to commit us. Let me rephrase that. In our failure, God is committed to restore us to fruitfulness. Verse three says, he restoreth my soul. We've talked about restoration. This house knows about restoration. We know that in Joel it says that when the caterpillar, when the palmer worm, when the locust, when those four insects attack the plant, we know it destroys the root, it destroys the stalk, it destroys the fruit, it destroys the covering. Every area of your life that the enemy would like to trash, they would like to trash your foundation, and would like to trash your covering, and would like to trash your seed, and would like to trash your fruit, like to shut you off and shut you down, but he is the God of restoration. He said, I will restore years that have been stolen from you. I pastor people that in life, they tough time growing up, tough time raising their kids, had some storms, had some snags, but all of a sudden now they've got grandkids and they're getting to do with the grandkids that they could not do with their own children. I've watched God do that. I've watched God take families, put families together that there's no, no way on planet earth that they could survive that not only survived, but they stayed together years and had more kids together. He is the God of restoration. And when I think about restoration, I think about in David's worst, the worst part of David's life, other than Absalom trying to kill him, when he messed up, and he, and he didn't just kill Uriah. Uh, this was brought to my attention yesterday. When Joab gave the orders for the troops to withdraw, all the men in front didn't get that order. So not only was Joab left there to die, but the men that were with him were left there to die. That, that's kind of a pretty, pretty tough time in your life, isn't it? So David is reflecting upon the negatives of his life. And in Psalms 51, he says, Have mercy upon me, O God. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me with hyssop. Make me white as snow. Verse 10, create in me a new heart and give, create in me a new heart and give me a new spirit. You know what it says? Create me a clean heart and renew a right spirit with me. Now, this is a guy that has committed adultery, walking depression, murder, murdered a bunch of people, births a child. I preached a sermon one time on a horse with no name. This baby that David and Bathsheba had never had a name. They never named it. It died. You know the story. David washed his face, and he, and he, and he began to eat. And they said, why, why, are, you eat, why are you eating now when the baby... Was, was sick, you didn't eat, but now you're eating. He said, well, there's nothing I could do to bring him back, but I one day will go with him. Okay, at the end of David's life on his deathbed, there was another son that said, I want to be king, but Bathsheba reminds David of his promise, and her son Solomon is instated as the king of Israel. I mean, you talk about restoration. The wife that he stole, the child that he didn't have, that God restores, not just the marriage, but God restores the son, and allows him, the Bible says, to be the wealthiest and the wisest man that ever lived. However, I, I question his wisdom. Any man that would have 300 wives and 700 girlfriends, I question how smart they really are. Can I get a chuckle or a laugh or anything in the house? Paul said this, forgetting those things which are behind, I reach toward those things which are before. David refused to allow the sins of yesterday to affect his tomorrow, so he dealt with it. Have mercy on him. David, David pled for God's mercy. Create a new heart. Give me a right spirit. Wash me with his, purge me. Let, me. let me start all over again. Only the power of God can give you a second, and a third, and a fourth, and a fifth, and a sixth, and a seventh. The word says a good man falls down seven and gets back up eight, so we know that God gives you at least eight chances 
to start. You can't start over. Nicodemus said, should I go back in my mother's womb? No, you can't start over, but you can start again. You can take it up from here and say, from this moment forward, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to say. Here's what I'm going to pursue. Here's what I'm going to accomplish. I'm not going to let the failures of yesterday. I'm so glad that Thomas Edison did not allow 999 failures to stop him from making that thousandth attempt, or we wouldn't have electricity. We'd be said hot, sweaty. We'd be, there'd be candles. This place would be miserable. This service would be five minutes long because nobody could endure one another's body perspiration stuff. Aren't you glad that he, that he didn't quit, he didn't give up. And I believe God is glad that you're not quitting, you're not giving up, but you're pushing on to the things that God has for you. And I will, I will conclude this. This will be a very quick conclusion. Wow, I still have three more pages. Well, let's, let's, let's cut it off here. Lead us in the path of righteousness for thy name's sake. Several years ago, I preached a sermon entitled, God Took a Chance on You. God Took a Chance on You. When God allowed you to be conceived and God allowed you to be birthed and God gave you plan A, all those are plan A, God will submit to our plan B. God will allow us to marry the wrong wife. God will allow us to have the wrong job. God will allow us to not follow ministry. God will allow us not to tithe. There are, there are things that God, God's not going to force us. God will say, this is the way, walk ye in it, but he will allow you to take another path. Led Zeppelin said, there are two paths that you can go by, but in the long run, there's still time to change the path you're on. I agree. I believe God is a God of mercy. I believe God is a God of, of forgiveness. I believe God is a God that will allow us to, to mess up, make all the wrong decisions, and then at the age of 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, God will allow us to get back on the path we were supposed to be on, and he's not sorry he called us to that path. God's not sorry he called you to ministry. No matter what bump, he knew there'd be a bump before you bumped. He still called you. He still planned it. But God took a chance on you, and there are things that God will do in your life for his name's sake. If God didn't, then David could have never said, I have been young, now I'm old. I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor a seed out begging for bread. David couldn't have said that if God had not time and time and time again restored, healed, and delivered for his name's sake. He did it, he did it for his reputation. Moses told God, what are the people going to say about you if you let this whole nation crash and burn? And God spared the nation because of Mo Moses reminding God of his reputation and reminding God of his character. Does it mean that God forgot? Does it, does it mean that God dropped the ball? Absolutely not. But sometimes God will push us to say the right thing. Sometimes God will push us to do the right thing. Sometimes God will push us to make the right decision. Man, it's easy to tell the accountant something that didn't happen and save $3,000 on your income tax. Come on. But God, God will push us to integrity. God will push us to doing the right thing and, and, being, and being the right person for his namesake because that's the kind of God that he is. He's faithful. In the early 1900s, and I'm concluding, I'm circling the airport. The man at the control tower said, there's some problems on the runways. I need to stall a little bit. So in my stalling, let me tell you a true story. Early 1900s, there was a horrible, horrible, horrible fire in Chicago and destroyed thousands of homes. Many people lost their life. One man in particular, a godly man, lost his house and all of his possessions. Trying to regroup and trying to regather, he sends his wife and four kids to Europe. In the early 1900s, there were not jets. There were no planes. It went the old-fashioned way by the cargo ship. And sometimes those ships took as much as weeks to get to the eastern port. As his family, wife and four kids, were aboard this ship, headed towards Europe, there was a horrible storm. And the storm was so horrible and so intense that when his wife got to Europe, she sent him a telegram that said, saved alone. 
not only lose his house and all of his furnishing, all of his clothes, all his possessions, he lost four children. He immediately boards a ship to head to Europe to be with his wife. He told the captain that particular ship, he said, the coordinates that this storm hit the boat and my family was lost, will we passing, will we be going that same way? And the captain said, yes, we will. He said, would you let me know when we get to that place where the storm took my family? He said, yes, I will. I don't know, two or three o'clock in the morning, there's a knock on his door, and the captain says, hey, we're, we're approaching the place where the storm took your family. This man, having lost his house, his furnishings, his family, went out on the rail, leaned on the rail of that ship, and looked at that dark, murky ocean water, and had an envelope in his, in his pocket, a piece of, piece of quill, and as he was looking at that, that ocean, knowing that his four children had died somewhere, in that vicinity, he wrote down these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea bells roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Bad things are going to happen to good people. There are things that are going to be lost. There are things that are going to be stolen. There are things that are going to be taken. There are things that, that are going to be forfeited. You will never find yourself immune from tragedy and pain and frustration. But may I remind you again, the word says, in everything, give him thanks. And that it is well, it is well with my soul. As every head is bowed, every eye is closed just for a moment. Father's 12.